I'm very pleased to be here tonight. Uh, I want to talk about something that's close to my heart. <clears throat> my, um, my parents were Russian immigrants, uh, Mennonites, who immigrated from Russia. <clears throat> and uh, we had a 10-acre farm. We worked a 10-acre farm. We had food, but we were in poverty every year of my childhood. My dad took a job as a janitor to help make ends meet. Things worked out, and I saw firsthand that somebody intelligent and hardworking and decent could be stuck in a minimum wage job, and, and, uh, and that that didn't change. <clears throat> but things worked out well for me. I got a scholarship, went to college. But I look around today, and it seems to me that more of the injustice that I saw in my father's life is present to today than it was then. So that's the problem that I want to talk about. I'm going to start my story uh, in 1990. Peace broke out. The Cold War ended. Uh, the Berlin Wall came down. And the government stopped buying fighter planes, which is what we made in Los Angeles. We lost 240,000 jobs out of defense firms and at least that many more out of the suppliers to those firms. So what you're seeing in this chart, the dark bars on the left are people leaving Los Angeles. The lighter yellow bars on the right are people coming to Los Angeles from other countries, mostly Mexico, Central America. <clears throat> During that decade, about a million and a half people left Los Angeles. And during the same period, a bit over a million immigrants came here. And those immigrants saved our bacon. If they hadn't come, we would have been like Pittsburgh. We would have had empty stores, empty houses. <clears throat> but those immigrants brought with them um, the problem of low-paying jobs. The, industrial ba the manufacturing base of LA changed from aerospace to apparel. And uh, we have a continuing issue of immigrants making uncompensated gifts of wealth to the Los Angeles region. The informal economy is the often the employer of last resort. It's jobs that workers take out of economic desperation. And so this is showing our estimates of the rates of informal employment in Los Angeles. The red line in the middle is all jobs. So we estimate about one out of five jobs in Los Angeles is in the informal economy. In restaurants and services, it's even higher. It's about 25%. <clears throat> These workers have jobs with employers that are often predatory. predatory. The employers don't pay legally required uh, 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 social safety net benefits um, and often um, pay even sub-minimum wages. So this is um, roughly 70% of workers in the informal economy are immigrants, we estimate. And it's a problem for Los Angeles to have this many workers in the shadows, and it is a problem that could be fixed with immigration reform. 
A concurrent problem in Los Angeles has been the declining value of the wages for everybody in the labor force below the 75th percentile. So if you think of the labor market as a ladder with 100 rungs with progressively better pay, people in the, uh, the 25th percentile have lost about 37% of their buying power over the past 35 years. Uh, everybody below the 75th percentile has lost ground. And Los Angeles is an expensive place to live. Our uh, cost of living is about 37% higher than the national average. So we're an expensive city with most workers uh, having wages that are stagnating or actually decreasing in terms of the real uh, buying power. One of the issues that's associated with what we just saw is poverty. And there's very interesting work that's been done lately around not just poverty, but income volatility. It's astounding that um, over a two-year period, 29% of Americans have an episode of poverty. Um, that's something we might not know, but it is remarkably common, and for most people, these stints of poverty are short. They're not a 12 months of continuous poverty, which is what we read about when we mostly read poverty data, but they're, they're income volatility. It's, it's all of a sudden a job ending, uh, or a household breaking up and a wage earner living, but it's, it's um, a, um, an abrupt change in income, and these changes are uh, uh, far more frequent for people with lower incomes, far more frequent for African-American and Latino households. So <clears throat> the issue with poverty is not just that it's a static condition for some people, but that it's a visitor to many households and creates enormous stress and instability trying to hang on to shelter and put food on a table. One of the things that's happening is there is out-migration of poorer folks from uh, California. Over the last decade, we had net out-migration of about 800,000 low-income people, people in poverty or close to poverty from California, a lot of them uh, from Los Angeles. And uh, a net gain of about 20,000 people with incomes uh, over $100,000. So. <clears throat> Out-migration of poor folks who do uh, things we depend on in our daily lives, people who are truck drivers, people who are cashiers. Um, uh, and uh, so one of the issues, again, this raises is uh, how to make Los Angeles sustainable for people who do the things we depend on. This is particularly interesting. This, this chart looks at intergenerational uh, income mobility. So this is the kind of thing where low numbers are good. This is the percent of children's economic status that is determined by the economic status of their parents. So what we're seeing in this is that in the United States, about half of what, half of a child, half of the explanation 
for a child's economic status when they're adult, an adult is their parents' economic status. Um, and only half is attributable to their own intelligence and effort and, and hard work. Part of the reason is that more affluent families were able to give a bigger boost to their kids. Um, out of people in the top quarter of incomes, 77% finish their, get a BA degree by the time that they are 24, by the, by the time they're 24 years old. Among households in the bottom quarter of incomes, only 9% achieve that. So having parents who can help pay your tuition, help you get ready for, to take your SATs, help you scout out colleges, help you scout out financial, who know the ropes and have financial resources, makes a lot of difference in how fast you get traction with your education, how early you can enter the labor market. This graph that we're, that's up now is looking at the burden of housing cost. And green is good in this graph. Green means that you're not cost burdened. It means that your cost for housing is 30% or less of your income. And every other color is a shade of increasing financial distress as you try to have shelter. It's astounding that if you look at the very poorest group, people earning less than 15,000, 80% of those households pay 70% or more of their income for rent. Um, one small problem in their lives and uh, they're homeless. A job that stops or an unexpected expense. And people all the way up to $70,000 over uh, uh, 70,000 a year, those households are uh, over half are rent burdened. So this is the final slide I want to, thanks, thanks very much, thank you. For the past um, close to 20 years, the Gallup polling organization has been asking people a question. It asks um, people, do you personally worry about the problem of hunger and homelessness a great deal, a fair amount? only a little or not at all. And among households that earn less than 30,000 a year, 67% say they worry a great deal about uh, hunger and homelessness. That's up from 52% uh, about 20 years ago. Surprising, even looking at more affluent households over $75,000, 37% say they worry about homelessness and hunger. <clears throat> So I want to conclude by, um, by saying that to, to varying degrees, most households in Los Angeles experience wage stagnation, pay more than they can afford for housing, worry about their children's futures, get glimpses of poverty, and, uh, and worry about homelessness. But these burdens fall most heavily on the immigrant poor, on Latinos, on African Americans. 
the future of Los Angeles uh, will be decided by the future of the, uh, of the children of immigrants. 57% of households in Los Angeles speak a language other than the English. 35, 37% are, um, are immigrants. So the question I think for all of us is what concrete actions can we take that will make Los Angeles a fairer, more equitable, and more inclusive home for the workers that we all depend on in our daily lives? Does anybody feel sad? <laughs> okay, it's only gonna get worse, sorry. <laughs> no. So uh, Dan, thank you so much for setting the context for the conversation. Um, hi everybody, my name is Rudy, and um, this is what I'm gonna cover in the next 10 minutes. Uh, I'm gonna talk about the problem, uh, a little bit less than Dan, I'm just gonna run through it. Uh, some of the things that uh, when we were doing research on this issue, uh, came out to us is important to know. Um, and I'm gonna spend most of the, the talk, uh, my talk in the, in the next few minutes talking about the criminalization of the poor, okay? And I'm gonna give you all a case study uh, on an issue that we've talked, uh, we've worked on for several years and then we're gonna come up with solutions or I'm gonna share some solutions that I think are interesting that we should all know about. And there's a question mark there because on purpose, because I don't know if there are solutions, but I hope that we, together we can have a discussion about uh, how we can push some of these things forward and how we can make them better. How does that sound? Cool? Yeah. Awesome. Okay, great. So, I was at a meeting earlier this week with the CEO of a financial institution, and they told me, Rudy, yes, the system is, is really rigged. It's true. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to start with this quote because I think we hear about it so much um, in the media and different places, and I think that almost we're becoming... Um, numb to this idea that the system is rigged, but it truly is rigged, okay? And I'll tell you a little bit why. And Dan certainly set the context for that a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, here's a couple of things that you should know. Um, the top 1% make 81 times more than the bottom 50, and we know this. We know that there's a, the 1% that basically own a majority of our country, and then the majority of us don't really own too much. Um, there is a 50% chance of millennials um, which is the future of our city and the future of our country won't make more than their parents, which is I think the first time in a long time that that's gonna happen or ever, Dan. But uh, there is certainly, uh, we're in this position where we're not sure what the future is, that things are so dire that we don't know um, how, you know how we're gonna end up. I found this cool thing on the internet here that's sort of uh, this graphic that shows some of the things that Dan uh, illustrated with his bar charts. Um, but you'll see that the bottom 50% hasn't really moved up. You see that the 1980 folks were making on average post-tax income $21,000 is the bottom 50%. They got a $4,000 raise in about 20, 34 years. But the top 1% certainly has been making a ton of cash. And uh, that's something that we should all know about that there is a certain uh, percentage of our population that is doing really well and they're certainly crafting policies that are, you know, perpetuating that. And the majority of us, um, at, at least 50% of our country is, you know, hasn't got a, a wage hike in a long time. So, um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to point out, and Dan uh, pointed out uh, very clearly too, is that the inequality that you're seeing has disproportionate impacts on black and brown families, okay? It certainly touches everybody, 
it, there, we all feel it in some way. Even if you're in the 1%, you are feeling it in some way. But there's a disproportionate effect on black and brown families. Um, and so uh, there's a study that UCLA, I don't know if you've seen the study, Dan, that UCLA uh, uh, published a couple years ago called The Color of Wealth. And they started uh, assessing how much people are worth. What is the value? You know, if, if I wanted to sell myself, how much am I worth, right? If, if I brought in, I put in all my assets minus all my debts, how much am I worth? And so what they found was that the median net worth of a white household in LA was $335,000. So all the stuff that they own minus all the debts, they're left with $355,000. But when they looked at other, uh, you know, their uh, counterparts, whoops. The median net worth of a Mexican household is $4,000. It's a pretty big difference. And then you look at the median net worth of a black household and it's $3,500. That is income inequality. The, the huge differences that we're seeing, folks. We black and brown folks are here at the bottom and the average white household is all the way at the top. And Dan said some really important things about um, that uh, what happens is that you know, you're supporting yourself. You got money, you're gonna help your kids, and then they're, they're gonna have cash to start their businesses, go to college and do those things, and it perpetuates. Because it's natural, we're gonna take care of our families, we're gonna take care of our friends. But when you're starting way at the bottom, let's say in the case of the black household that's only worth 3,500, there's only so much that they can do to help. There's only so much that they can do to get their kids to college. And there's certain things that if they get a $250 fine, that's gonna, it's gonna really saddle them. It'll really paralyze them from growth. The small things have a huge impact on the households at, at the bottom. And again, this is the majority, as we're learning today, this is the majority of our country and the majority of our city that's dealing with this. So one of the things I was thinking about, I was like, you know what, this is not like a new thing. The, there's, there's, there's systemic things and perhaps it's by design. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about is, is our economy built like this? Is injustice just embedded into it? And so if you just look at history, and I know everybody here has taken a history class at the very least, and um, I think just folks here that have come, come to sessions like this probably are relatively knowledgeable, so this is not, not, nothing new, but everybody knows we had slavery um, in this country. And this was when you look at the history and you look at the economy of our country, if there was no slavery, we probably wouldn't be the United States of America. The, the American economy was built off of the free labor of slaves. And so um, this is kind of the context you're beginning to build a country. If you imagine yourself as one of the founding fathers, you're like, all right, this is how we're going to start. <laughs> we're going to enslave people. We're going to take advantage of them for a long time. We're going to protect it and create policies to protect that system. And we're going to start jumping ahead, people. We're going to start jumping ahead. Okay? But it didn't stop there. Then they're like, you know what, we need land. This is an image of the, the Trail of Tears. But I mean, essentially, they said, we need land. We want to grow. We want to do a lot of things. Let's remove all these people. And then it also happened at Mexicans. And so this is a map that I found uh, that uh, I was looking, I was Googling Aslan. I don't know if anybody knows what Aslan is, but Aslan is essentially the Southwest, according to the Chicano community. But you know, this was land, uh, you know, as a result of the US-Mexico war that was for uh, a lot of folks believed that was you know, relatively stolen. There was a very small sum of money that was paid to the United States and they got all this piece of land. And I think that that's another sort of, uh, another land grab that uh, is important. These are assets. Then we have Jim Crow. 
that again, policies have perpetuated and kept this, this situation in place. Then we had redlining. I don't know if anybody, do people know what redlining is? Some of the urban planners here, urban planners are like, yes, I know what redlining is. So this is a map of Los Angeles that uh, this was in the 40s or 50s. And uh, essentially uh, what, what happened is, um, if you think about it in this simplistic terms, uh, you have these policies, you have this big income inequality, these gaps, and then the banks are saying, cool, how are we gonna protect this? We don't wanna circulate capital to these folks. And they literally colored neighborhoods based on who lived there. So you see all the red blotches, that's like Boyle Heights, that's East LA, you see that little strip of red right there uh, in the middle, that's South Central. All areas that had Mexicans, blacks, Jewish people listed in order, they would not provide any loans to. They said, you guys are not gonna get loans for your businesses. We're not gonna give you mortgage loans so you can buy homes. You wanna take your kids to college? Sorry, no student loans for you. You're too risky because of where you come from and what you look like. Then we have issues with Native Americans. This is recently, this happened last year. You guys, I'm, I'm sure have been following uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. So these things are super, still super current. And then I read this awesome article last week. I don't know if anybody's been following Colin Kaepernick, but, um, you know, this man has stepped up and has, you know, ex you know, exercised his freedom of speech to talk about some things that are happening in the country that he disagrees with, and now he can't find a job. It's kind of weird, because there's a lot of football teams that are looking for quarterbacks, and he's a pretty decent quarterback, and they're like, we don't want that dude. We're not going to give him any more capital. He's causing too much trouble, you know? And so these are things that are happening in our country that continue to happen today. So these are not old things. And I think I hear sometimes like, Rudy, that was slavery, that's back in the day. No, no, this is still happening today. It's so embedded that we don't even know that th these issues are happening, that we just think that this is just the way things work. And it's not, it shouldn't be that way. So a friend of mine told me, I was saying, man, I don't think that the system is working. And they were like, well, Rudy, is it working? Maybe it's working really well. Maybe it's supposed to be that way. So let me fast forward case study. And uh, you know, LEARN is part of a citywide campaign called the um, LA Street Vendor Campaign, Claire Fox, LA Food Policy Council, right here in the front row, is part of our steering committee. Other folks, uh, folks all over the, uh, the city have been working together um, on behalf of street vendors, I'm working with Dan and his team. And so I wanna share with you what happens when you have a system of inequality and what we're doing to them on top of these, these issues. So there's an estimated 50,000 street vendors in LA. These vendors sell food and merchandise and sidewalks. Many of them are older workers and chronically unemployed. When you think about the bottom 50%, it's most of, most of them are, you know, street vendors are really falling into that. Um, but you know, they add a lot of value to our city. They're attracting customers to commercial corridors. Many of us buy fruit from them when, we're, when it's hot and we need something tasty. And uh, Dan and his team prepared a study that measured that there was $504 million of economic activity that these folks in the informal economy were contributing to our great city, okay? So you, you know, it's like, wow, these people are awesome. And I think most of the folks hopefully in the room, yeah, like street vendors are cool. You know, these are some photos that I've captured over the years. They're activating lots, and this is in South Central that are underutilized. Um, Echo Park, beautiful day. You're gonna get your ice cream from the, from the nice man. Uh, underutilized sidewalks right here, they're activating it. You know, this Carneceria, this is part of the Carneceria, and they're coming out and saying, hey, you know what, it's, it's mixed use, mixed use. Let's do some different things here. So we see these folks. These folks are Angelinos. They're part of our city. But street vending is illegal, and we are one of the only major cities in the country that doesn't have a permit system for sidewalk vending. 
Um, they face heavy fines and the confiscation of their equipment. And you know, they're subject up until recently to criminal charges, up to misdemeanors for selling an ice cream to you. And so when you think about um, some of the, the, the data that shows how we are very unequal when it comes to assets, when it comes to income, and then you see how we're also on top of that putting on policies that are making it harder for these folks. None of these folks are in the 1%. I don't know if there's any data that shows that, Dan, but I, I think that, <laughs> I don't think any of these street vendors are in the 1%. <laughs> they're probably in the bottom 50%. So they're trying, to make, they're trying to make it work. They probably have very little assets. They're probably negative net worth. And on top of that, we're you know, um, adopting policies that make it, makes it harder for them. So what does that say about us? What does that say about our system? If you see somebody poor and then you're kicking them more, you're kicking them more. And that's what's happening with street vendors. So um, it's a big deal and Dan covered it that it's like one little thing really makes an impact to somebody. I've gotten calls where it's like they, you know, a street vendor would get their equipment confiscated and it's an igloo cooler maybe that they were holding their ice cream in or something. Maybe to us it's like 50 bucks to get one at Target, no big deal. I'll, I'll go in the evening so I don't have to worry about lines, you know? <laughs> for them, it's like, oh my God, how am I going to recoup this $50? I needed that money for the rent. God forbid, maybe one of my kids is sick and I need to get some medicine. The smallest thing that we take for granted is a huge gargantuan thing. Imagine the stress that folks are dealing with for the, for the dollar, two dollars, or the extra fine that they got because they were just trying to make a living. So we have work to do. Uh, the LA Street Vendor Campaign has been working for the last five years to ask our city leaders to create a permit system. Uh, recently, a couple months ago, they actually stripped that piece, which is good. They, were, they saw what was happening at the federal level and Trump coming down and basically deporting anybody that had any misdemeanor. And so they're like, wait a minute, now we gotta do something. And so they started working on this, which is good. Um, and there's been a lot of public hearings. And so we're excited about the progress. But you know, I wanted to just share with you that this is one very small example, just one case study of what's happening. And you know, um, I, I'm sure you guys are familiar with these faces: um, Eric Garner, Alton Sterling, and the man on the right, Mohammed uh, Bouzazi, is the man that uh, was. Just, these are all street vendors. Uh, uh, you know, Eric Garner was um, killed because he was selling loose cigarettes. He was choked by police officers, and he was, uh, for folks that don't know was uh, where the I Can't Breathe shirts started coming out and that was part of the Black Lives Matter movement and it was an important rallying cry. He was a street vendor. Alton Sterling was selling CDs. He was beloved by his community members. The store where he was killed, the store owner came out and said, what do you do? This is my neighbor, this is my friend. He sells CDs. And the man on the right burned himself because the Tunisian government created such bad policies, he was just trying to survive, trying to make it, that he, he, he basically put, he engulfed himself in flames, he died, and that's what started the Arab Spring. So these folks are just trying to live, and, they're, and, and we're not, and, and they're already facing crazy income inequality, but on top of that, we're criminalizing them. And it's important to really make, to see these connections, so when Eric Garner, I was like, dude, that's a street vendor. I can't believe it. This is what's happening, in, this is happening here in LA. This is not a faraway thing. Alton's turning, I can't believe it. He was selling CDs. That's a street vendor. I know a guy that sells CDs. You know, we're all connected to this. And when you get to a place like in Tunisia, where folks that are at the bottom 50% are setting themselves on fire 
we're in deep trouble, people. And I think we're getting to a place because we're not really taking any of this stuff seriously as from a policy level. So what do we do? Set super sad, you know, and I guess one of the things that it strikes me is that, you know, well, these are really serious issues and we really need to tackle them with serious solutions and well-resourced ones too. This is not, it's not going to be a small program at LEARN that has like one small grant that's going to do this. This is going to take gargantuan efforts that is pushed by all of us and that's saying this, these are our values and, and we need to prioritize these things. It's going to take something huge to really address these things because again, it's embedded into the history of our country. So for us, we have to do a huge reform or revolution. So one of the ideas, and these are just to, to wrap up my presentations, these are some crazy ideas I've been thinking about, right? So I was like, okay, we gotta figure this out. What are we gonna do? So one of the things was like, what, what if we just pay people? People are, you know, we're at $3,500, you know, maybe we just need to give them a ton of cash so they could catch up, right? And so lo and behold, there's a lot of smart people that have been working on stuff like this. And, um, and some of the examples that I've been, uh, we've been working on at Learn is conditional cash transfers. Has anybody heard of this? Kind of, okay. And then related to that is the idea of a universal basic income, that everybody has a basic sustenance wage, okay? But the idea of the conditional cash transfer um, is, uh, is a really interesting one. It was recently uh, piloted at a mass scale in Brazil by what the program called the, the Bolsa Familia. Have you heard of this, Dan? From your slide that you showed. Oh, okay, cool. So they're trying it in Finland, they're trying it in Canada. Apparently Elon Musk think, thinks that this is gonna be the next thing because we're automating all our jobs so we're, none of us are gonna have jobs so we're gonna need to have some kind of income. But the idea is, is that if, that everybody should have the basic amount of income so they could take care of their basic expenses. And in order to get this income, it's conditional, you have to do basic things. Take your kids to school, go to the doctor every, every year, you know, go to the grocery store. And as you hit these marks in Brazil, they were saying, cool, you hit your mark, Viviana, cool. Here's your, here's your little tab on your card and you're gonna get some cash that's gonna go directly into your bank account. They were able to reduce income inequality by 27% in the first term of uh, President Silva's uh, term. So there, it's interesting. Why are we not talking about these things? Why don't we take, you know, and, and it's not, you know, people are like, well, Rudy, that's Brazil, that's Latin America, they're crazy over there, who knows what they're doing, it's, it's a mess. But it's like, dude, I don't know, maybe we need to think about that because I don't think we're in good, that good a shape over here. <laughs> Turns out that Martin Luther King was thinking about this too right before he was killed. This is a, a quote uh, from his uh, last Sunday sermon before he was murdered. Um, he says, we are coming to demand that the government address itself to the problem of poverty. We read one day, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if a man doesn't have a job or an income, he has neither life, nor liberty, nor the possibility for the pursuit of happiness, he merely exists. And the examples that I shared with you, sometimes you don't even get that opportunity to exist. And Martin Luther King was already beginning to think about this is gonna be the new frontier is income inequality, the poor people's campaign. How are we gonna move forward on some of these issues? And this is, this is how we get to connect with each other. Because black and brown folks are certainly impacted more, but a lot of us you know, have issues oftentimes with assets and making money and finding a job. It's, this is not supposed to be a country just for the 1%. So, um, 
that was probably the, the biggest solution I want to just put out there. So the last stuff is passing progressive policy. I think it's really important that we put that we ask our elected officials to take this seriously, to say, hey, this is not this is not some fun theoretical idea. We need to really think seriously about these things, and we need to address some of these market failures. And we, but this stuff requires new leadership. And you know, today's election night, I don't know if folks voted if they were in the 34th congressional district, but it, it really is amazing. You see 23, 24 people going, running for office, most of them women saying, you know what? You guys suck. We, gotta, we need a new pipeline of leaders. And it's true. And I think if we do build a new pipeline of leaders, we're gonna have better policy. And the last thing I'll say is that I think we need to redesign our financial institutions. Our financial system, I'm an urban planner. I was trained to, to, to think of banks as the center of communities. They facilitate capital. They provide capital for homes, for refinancing our businesses. And I don't know if they're doing that. That's not the banks that I'm talking to. Um, and, and one of the things that struck me, I was at this panel on impact investing, this new trend of like impact investing. We're gonna invest and provide loans to things that make impact. And, <laughs> But they're still using like the three C's of credit, which are collateral, credit, history, and character. And they don't really think about character. They're just like, well, what do your financials say? I'm not sure. I got to make sure that we make money on this. And, and it's, it, it really struck me that we're still using the old system. We're, we're trying to get people to conform to a system that was never about them to begin with. And maybe we should flip it. Maybe it's about designing institutions that are serving the 50% for once. So that's all. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Does anybody have any questions? <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, the examples that, um, there's very few. Um, the one that I'm thinking about right now is this new bank. It's a CDFI, Community Development Financial Institution, that actually does more than loans. It also takes deposits, and they're called Beneficial State Bank. Um, their CEO, uh, Kat, she's married to Tom Steyer, the filthy rich guy who was uh, an assembly member. Um, and they're, she's really killing it. I just, every time she talks, when I hear her talk and make presentations about what they're trying to do, it's really rethinking and, and, and helping. Uh, she wants to make her bank accountable to the people that she serves. So that's, they're expanding to LA. Um, they're, they have a couple of branches that they've uh, sort of uh, bought out from other smaller community banks. So that's kind of interesting. But I mean, a lot of the big guys I just really struggle with, Julia, you know? And it's, uh, I used to do consulting with banks and it's tough because I think they're still trying to make a dollar. And I, I think it's okay, and I think it's possible for us to, you know, have double bottom line outcomes. But sometimes I wonder, man, dude, like maybe we just need to pay. <laughs> like we're so like, why are we still trying to make twenty percent return to help people get out of poverty? Like I don't know. Like are we just shooting ourselves in the foot? I don't know. And I'm not sure if the banks are yet. I think something, you know, catastrophic has to happen to shake them up. Oh, it's uh, called Beneficial State Bank. <clears throat> All right. 
So recently I've been thinking a lot about the nonprofit industrial complex, which for folks who aren't familiar is basically like how nonprofits get funded and it's still within a capitalist structure. So even if let's say like you're a really passionate nonprofit who wants to like help low income communities, the way the funding structure works kind of prohibits you from like really developing your ideas because they make sure that you like have a developed pitch for like a strategy and they kind of like package you and make you like kind of like a commodity almost. So I'm thinking like in terms of like policy reform and how like these systems like shape these other systems that are within it, like is it like a matter of like really reforming the policies or is it more like working outside of the policies? Because one of the books I was reading, this lady was talking about how she had problems with funding. So she decided to just switch out of institutional funding systems and she started to do her own grassroots like, you know, events like selling t-shirts or like making phone calls. And she said that she made basically the full amount that the Four Foundation declined to give to them after they supported Palestine. So it's like, do we have to wait for policies to reform or is it more important for us to like actually just start thinking outside the box? Like, I just like was interested in what you think about that kind of stuff. Well, the problems that Rudy and I have been talking about take a lot of money to fix. And um, I think it's always a challenge for each of us how we are true to our beliefs, how we are relevant to people, authentically relevant to the help people need, and also how the heck we line up resources. I mean, um, it requires a lot of agility because we do have to sell ourselves to foundations. I, um, I hear what you're saying about foundations. I'll say this, that they're a heck of a lot better to deal with than government you're looking for somebody to get a contract from, but uh, how we align the resources to address housing affordability, that was your problem, one of the problems you listed. The issue you listed, Rudy, of, uh, you know, when we don't have enough work for everybody, how do we provide an income for people? And what do we expect back from people? This conditional cash transfer thing is very interesting. I mean, would you replace our welfare system with that? We give people cash aid now. Would you replace it with that? Would I? Yeah. I don't know. I would look into it, though. I would totally look into it. I don't know if anybody is looking into it. Is it my, I don't know. I just, um, I can't take this out, but um, I don't know. I think that um, right now the welfare system doesn't allow you to, to build assets. Right that if you have savings, um, people literally hide their money because um, they don't want the government to know that they have a little extra cash. Um, and so that's a problem to me, you know? We're in Canada where they're doing this, they're doing a universal basic income, not conditional cash transfer. Um, they, I read this article, I think it was in The Guardian, and uh, the guy got this universal basic income and he's like, oh, he's like, just before it came, I actually just got a job. I just got a job. But he got it anyway. He still kept coming, it was a pilot. And he said, you know what, this is so awesome because this income that I'm getting allows me to go to school, to learn something different, to take a risk, to, to innovate. And I'm like, dude, that's, that's pretty dope, you know? I mean, just uh, to be a little bit sort of TMI here, my mom is a waitress and she's uh, older, she's 59. 
and uh, she's going through a transition in her life. She's trying to figure out, she's getting older, she's been, being, she's been a waitress for 30 years, third grade education, limited skill set. She can still contribute, but can she get hired at Economic Roundtable? Probably not, you know? Um, but she can still contribute, and she is worried about taking on a new venture because she's worried about paying the next bill. Imagine if there was an opportunity for her to say, hey, dude, we're gonna take care of that, but you have to just go to school and you have to take a risk. You wanna start that business? Takes a year or two years to figure it out, you know, we'll help you, you know? And I, we have to sort of think, I guess, I don't know, be sort of, you know, use some design thinking tactics, you know, like of human-centered design of like, what do people, how do people respond to things? Nonprofit industrial complex is crazy, dude. I, I just, I call Claire and some of my friends every time that I'm like, dude, should I take this money? I just don't know, I, I don't like them. <laughs> but you know, it's really hard to sell t-shirts. And, and just per, and per the income inequality thing, the, all the time that we're spending on selling t-shirts, we could be you know, partnering with folks like Dan and other folks here in this room to be like, dude, we gotta work on this stuff. And so that's kind of the, every single time a grant comes in, it's this, di this dialogue in our heads of whether or not to do it or not. And how do we feel about it? And compromising, and it freaking sucks, dude. And I know that if I was selling t-shirts and asking for donations, all my friends are poor too, because that's because we're on the 50% we're on, on sale, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like, okay, we're, we're just perpetuating each other, and they're like, dude, I already bought a t-shirt from you last month, dude, I, I, don't, I don't need another one. Right, yeah, I don't know, it's just, that's the hard part. I think it's a, well, go ahead, let's take a guess. and I had a little bit of a crisis like two weeks ago. Do you believe that government could be better stewards of the funding that's housed within family foundations in particular and private entities than they are themselves? So could you imagine if all the very rich people who give out money every single year actually decided to give that money to government to solve some of these problems? Do you think government would be as innovative as it needs to be in order to solve these like really dramatic issues? Can you talk about the county job? Can you tell about the county job? <laughs> well, I was telling Rudy before the meeting that I used to work for the county and I was telling him how terrible it was. Uh, that it's really very demoralized and um, very command and control. So, I mean, I think, the, I think the, one of the issues for me is that we're looking to have the best qualities of humanity embodied in our programs and our actions in helping people. And the more checks and balances you have, the more impersonal a program is and the less humane it is. So I do think many of the things that we care about, taking good care of foster kids, for example, it is very hard for government to replace what a family does. Um, and so the short, the answer, the bottom line for me is no, hang on to your money, don't give it to government. <laughs> I really appreciate that question because it, you know, we talk about like La Familia Bolsa or Bolsa Familia with the conditional cash transfers. Who oversees that and how do we ensure that it goes to where we want it to go? So I feel like your question invites us to think about you know, the public sector as the steward of the commonwealth that we can, we can redistribute towards 
addressing the gap, right? So I don't know. I guess I'm just curious from your standpoint when you think about these sort of strategies, what is the sector or where does it live? And I mean, I think we're in a space where we're seeing a lot of blended sectors um, and that feels important, but it's also, it's not totally defined yet. So how do we know there's accountability to the public good if it's not the government that's overseeing something like La Bolsa Familia? <laughs> well, I, 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 um, I think ultimately it's um, an engaged and concerned public that does this. I mean, uh, Rudy and I were talking, what if you were a federal employee? What if you worked for EPA or HUD? You had Obama, you know, it's still bureaucracy, but at least you were chugging somewhere. And now you've got a guy in there who won't bother to staff the department. He wants to whack 40% out of the budget, wants to turn around your mission, Pesticides are good. Dumping stuff in rivers is okay. I mean, how do you live with yourself as a federal worker? You know, if you believed in what you were doing in that agency, how do you... And it's all legal. I mean, he was elected. Um, you know, this stuff he can, if Congress agrees, cut the budget a lot. He can install people who want to do this stuff. So I, I think it's hard to find a single institution that we can hand the job off to. The, um, the uh, enormous rise in activism that's followed the election and just this proliferation of organizations that are standing up for basic values and basic humanity, I think that's really healthy. And I, I think at the end of the day there's you know, we, we probably need multiple institutions and we need, um, we need a public that is thoughtful and that's awake. You know, and Claire, I wonder, I just, maybe there isn't, I, I'm impatient with that answer, Dan, but I'm like, well, maybe that's the only way. It's just about holding folks accountable. And it was kind of cool to see like the travel bans get blocked by the judges, because I was worried. I was like, oh my God, is this gonna work? And then it worked, I'm like, oh damn, that actually did work and there was a system in place and checks and balances. I mean, I think one of the things that I, I think about a lot is like the pipeline that I mentioned. I don't know if we're really raising people to think uh, sort of like leaders, you know? And, um, you know, one of my favorite uh, sort of um, books is Plato's The Republic, and you talk about the philosopher kings, and there's a lot of folks that, you know, there's a lot of arguments pro and against about if that's a good strategy, but the idea of the philosopher king is actually pretty dope. It's like folks that are raised a certain way to be, he says, lovers of justice, not opinionated too much either way, just always coming into a, a, a position of like, I'm a lover of the facts. And, um, we're totally losing that, but it starts from it starts from the from from um, with raising our kids, I guess. It just starts with ourselves, you know. It's like folks are like, "Well, really, don't worry. In 30 years, all these people of color, all these folks are going to be out there." And I was like, "I don't know, dude," because when they panned to the Trumps Trumps like um, celebratory party, there was all these young white men with their little hats on. They were just like, "Yeah, dude." I'm like, "Dude, they're raising their kids a certain way too." So this is. It's going to be entrenched. It is going to be something persistence and relentlessness over time. There's not going to be a silver bullet. Awesome. Thank you both for being here. Um, it's it's so it's not surprising, but it's kind of shocking to just see like the generational poverty that exists. You know, it's like 
income and wealth is like a, a marathon and your parents pass you the baton at a certain point in time, whether that's a will or a trust or whatever, and you get that wealth at a certain point in the race. And what I, what I find myself is, one, the baton I received was, I wasn't even on the track, you know, and like same hometown, my dad has the same, like he's been an upholster for 40 years. And then I'm in the nonprofit world and I start my own nonprofit, not because I'm like, hey, I have a lot of money, let's start this. No, because I saw a problem and you just want to exist and you want to coexist and you want to coexist well. The same thing I hear about the banks in regards to the rich get rich and the poor get poor, I still see that in the nonprofit world in regards to like, I'm four years old in a nonprofit and you talked about the three C's, looking at character and cred credibility. For me, it's, it's most often like, if I don't have the logistical 990s and certain things in place and I, I can't compete and I can't try to get that capital that's there, um, but the story, I can't tell the story in the way in which I feel like I can tell it because these certain things aren't there. So what are your thoughts or ideas in regards to like distributing the wealth within the nonprofit sector? And I know we're in the same boat and we're taking the same class, but I'm just here, curious to hear your thoughts in regards to how can foundations or, or people with money actually that want to help outside of just like their tax return write-offs kind of thing, give nonprofits a chance to tell that story and really look at the credibility of people who are trying to solve the problem that have been born and raised in the areas where the problems like were and are still continuing to, to, to take place. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just like, um, uh, I, I do think part of the work, um, I think philanthropy is changing, I hope. Angie, I hope so, right? <laughs> like, I, I mean, I do think that, uh, I think that, um, I agree with you, it sucks. And Learn, when we started, uh, it's, I'm gonna be, my four year anniversary this week as executive director at Learn, I was a first employee, and so we had nothing. And it was always like up against the stream, like, dude, then they're like, who are you? I don't know who you are, what are you doing? And, and uh, you know, we're gonna go and give our money to the United Way. I'm not hating on the United Way, but you know, they're more institutional organizations, because that's a safe bet. And it's kind of like what I was saying earlier is that we can't take no more safe bets, people. The safe bets are, are making things, are keeping these the same or making them worse. And so we have to invest in things that are different. And even if they fail, big whoop, we're still gonna be in the bottom 50% and we'll just figure something else out and try again. And um, I don't feel like there's this sort of nature in the nonprofit sector of failure and, and our funders are yet not there. So like the Cultures Foundation with Angie over here, to call you out again, they were one of the first people to invest and learn. And um, I'm always gonna be super grateful to them because they were like, okay, cool, you're new, but cool, it sounds like awesome, we'll go for it anyway. And because they did it, then other folks started to come, they're like, okay, I guess they're pretty legit if they're coming in. And it's, we have to figure out how we can push everybody to shift their values a little bit. Everybody has a stake in the game, you know? Um, but it, it really does suck. You see some folks that have amazing ideas and they can't even get a break, but you see uh, these Silicon Valley companies that are, have stupid ideas and they get hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital money and then they fail next year and then they're like, okay, whatever, we're just entrepreneurs, we're gonna try again. Shouldn't we be investing in people that are trying to eliminate poverty and trying to like eliminate racism and all these things? We don't do the same thing because I think people treat us like, well, that's just a charity. I'm gonna to give to LA Compost because I feel good and it's my little tithe at the end of the day and you know, that's what I do, you know? But I'm gonna go make money and be a crook on the others. It's not cool, the system's jacked. Well, I would make, uh, just to look for a little bit of sunlight here. Um, 
I think one of the things that works is for nonprofits to collaborate. To, for example, we worked with Rudy around the street vendors, and we do very, I mean, we're a research group. He's a, a kind of an activist think tank, a community, a social entrepreneur, maybe? Sure. So he does a whole lot of things we can't do. We do some things he can't do, and I think these kind of chained relationships among nonprofits can give groups a lot more visibility and collectively a lot more uh, uh, capabilities. So I think it makes you more fundable if you, if you extend uh, your capabilities through relationships and take on, you can do more ambitious things. Yeah. So. And thank you, Dan. So actually that grant that we received from the Goldthirds Foundation four years ago was in partnership with East LA Community Corporation because I, I was like, dude, we need a partner we're too little, no one, no one believes in us. I partnered with the LA Food Policy Council at the time, and so there is a, a sort of um, a resiliency that we have to come together just because we're trying to survive and struggle, you know? Um, this is an awesome conversation. Um, so just to kind of like throw my two cents in, uh, I'm in the for-profit world, I'm in real estate development, and I am constantly searching for the gap you know what what fills the gap because i'm doing i'm trying to do environmentally and socially progressive real estate development which you know someone hears that and they're like what the fuck does that mean you know and um but uh you know the environmental portion i've pretty much almost got you know i've, I've almost got the the you know figured it out okay what are the inefficiencies of construction and architecture like okay that's that's kind of like the easier portion the socially progressive portion is okay. I need to ask my investors to take less of a return in order to sell it for less or rent it for less, or I need to partner with a nonprofit who can give me that gap so that I can pay my investor the same amount that they can get from any anywhere else. You know, the guy who doesn't give a fuck about anything. You know, doesn't care about the environment, doesn't care about people, doesn't you know, doesn't give you know, doesn't really. You know, it cares about the dollar at the end of the day. So, you know, I see a huge potential for nonprofit and for-profit partnering together. And, you know, that's that's sort of what I'm, that's what I've been looking for. And I've been sort of like hitting a wall with it where I'm just, you know, people don't, in a lot of ways, I've, I've felt like nonprofits don't want to deal with me. Like they don't want to, you know, like they don't want to engage because they're just like, oh, this guy, you know, is just like some... You know, capitalist, and I'm just like, I'm like, yeah, okay, like, I'm, I'm trying to like make a difference through the capitalist system, but you know, at the end of the day, I'm, you know, it's, it's like I have other stakeholders, you know, so it's, you know, it's, that's something that I, I'd like to kind of get your thoughts on. Well, I think there's certainly room for um, enlightened and caring businesses. I mean, this is kind of a prosaic example, but. We do quite a bit of work around homelessness and housing mentally ill people is challenging. And there is a contingent of landlords that will rent an apartment to a mentally ill person if there's a caseworker who will keep that person stable. So it's um, an unorthodox thing, or it's maybe not a, a purely business-like thing to do, but it works and it takes some caring about humanity to bother to do it. But it can work, and you know, you can, your apartment complex can run okay, you can get paid your rent, but you've taken a risk and you've pushed the envelope. And I think 
I think those kind of relationships are really interesting. Is there something that somebody else can do that's complementary to you and lets you get into territory <clears throat> that you wouldn't be in otherwise? So I, that you're interested in that, I think is terrific. I just want to co-sign the interest because um, there's not a lot of um, real estate uh, folks that are asking those questions. And I guess one of the, I want to encourage you to keep asking those questions, even if the nonprofit sector and community-based organizations say, like, get go away, <laughs> keep pushing, you know? Because I think that for now, at least the way that I see is two parallel tracks. One, we got to do the public-private thing. We have to placate all the different stakeholders. Um, and you have to continue to find the way and push. And the second parallel track is really trying to figure out why that one stakeholder is still trying to get the money no matter what. Because it's a little bit of a sickness, I think, that it's like, how do we change the norm around capitalism, you know? So to move the guy away from saying, I want 20, 30% return, to like, okay, you know what, dude, 15 is cool, I'm re that's reasonable, that's normal, that's normal now, or I'm not, we're not in this culture of just trying to get more and trying to get more for no reason, when you're gonna just, you're gonna get paid. You'll get paid, people will pay, pay you rent and everything's gonna be fine and you don't have to get the extra percentage point. But in the meantime, I think we have to try to figure out how do we struggle, sell t-shirts, take the grant from the crooks and then partner to just try to survive, but keep asking the questions, you know what I mean? One, one friend of mine who's a real estate broker, uh, there's all this gentrification drama that's happening on the east side. And she's like, Rudy, I've been following all this stuff, dude. Like, can I talk? Because I'm having this crazy crisis. Am I adding to the, to the, to, to the drama? I don't want to gentrify people. This is terrible. And I was just like, I'm so happy you're asking these questions. I'm so happy you're thinking about your role and how you're connected. And I'm not sure. <laughs> but let's continue to talk. Let's try to figure this out. And we'll just try to you know, come up with new answers. That's the new frontier for us, as, I think, as a city. You know, is like folks coming together to think differently and just have drinks and chat. You know? If I could squeeze in just a quick comment. I think something like a fifth of the wealth of the country is held in foundation endowments. There's a lot of capital in foundation. There's a lot, of, a lot of capital in foundation endowments. And so, you know, to have that money do more than just produce interest that gets spent, to have that money, for example, be working capital. Yeah, they just have it sit there, right? Well, yeah. Just sits there. So to have that money be lent for social ventures that are financially sound would right. be a new source of capital. The lady back against the wall, you had your hand up, I'm sorry. Rudy, I was fascinated by your list of we need more progressive policy. So I'm curious now that with kind of our federal situation where it is and the importance of what we're doing locally um, and with our citizens like, uh, you know, not passing Measure S and, and passing Measure JJJ and Measure M and Measure, you know, all the different measures. Do you think that this is an opportunity for Los Angeles kind of leaders and politicians to do more? Do you see that as a possibility, and if so, what would they do, as, especially since you listed education and healthcare and housing, and do, do you think those issues actually connect to the kind of income equality that um, you have been fighting so hard for in many of your programs, especially fighting on behalf of the street vendors? Um, I'm curious about how you see all those different issues as it relates to income come together, and uh, you know, is there optimism in both your parts that kind of LA and the politicians are going to do something a little bit different just because of where we're at? 
it's cautious optimism. Um, it's super tempered, Helen, you know, because it's, um, because I, I, a lot of these folks are the same people, you know, and it's like, how do we get, I'm always thinking, like, how do you get new people in there with new energy, the, the philosopher kings and queens that are thinking about, like, lovers of justice, you know? So there's, you know, I was actually kind of on the, really sympathize with the yes on S people, because I'm like, dude, they're actually saying some things that are pretty reasonable, you know? Like, they're concerned about gentrification, planning is a mess, we don't update our community plans. I'm like, it makes sense. And it took the impending catastrophe of Measure S to get folks to the city council to be like, oh damn, we're gonna update the community plans every six years now. <laughs> it's a big win, I think, for the Measure S people. Um, and I give credit to them. And I think that uh, there's cautious optimism for the future because it's gonna really rely on us to be involved. So today there was all these, uh, again, congressional race today, polls are empty. Polls are empty. And somehow people are still not connecting their vote and their voice in the power of advocacy um, to these real issues that impact folks. It, and if they don't connect it, then our elected officials are just gonna look for the new opportunity. They're gonna legalize street vending when Trump is elected because they're like, I wanna be a, I wanna be a champion for immigrants. So that's how we're gonna do it now, after four years, you know? And it's like, ah. It's more like after 20 years. Or 20 years, yeah. It's been a long time. This is, this is yeah, you're right, Dan. So this is, the, this is just the latest iteration of the, and we don't know if we're gonna get it, get there, but I mean, it's, it's been decades. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about our generation, uh, and I'm hoping that we continue to ask those questions of each other, and we have to not get complacent, you know? I think we're just gonna take maybe two more questions. Thank you. So um, one of the things that you guys are kind of hitting on right now um, that I think is really interesting, um, Rudy, you brought up you know, the operationalized and structural racism that exists in our capitalist society, right? That leads to probably many of the reasons we had the macro liberal economic policies that have led to the places that we're at today, all right? Nationally, federally, looking at the economy in this country and here regionally. But one of the things that is really interesting to me is kind of that top percentage of that bottom 50%. So essentially the people in this room, um, the thing that has been, I think, really fascinating and interesting to me has been so many of the nonprofit leaders, especially in LA, many of whom have, um, I would say social impact conscious entrepreneurial ideas, they don't have access to that venture capital and risk capital, right, that we're talking about that they lend away in Silicon Valley. And again, you can kind of lead that back to, or, or trace that back to, again, uh, racism, these um, very closed networks. But the thing that crosses my mind is that Again, so many, especially the people in this room, come from, you know, we're brown, we're black, um, maybe we're the last portions of our generation that we're able to get further than our parents. We have ideas, but we don't have access to that money, right? We don't have access to that venture capital, but we have those ideas and those nonprofits, right? So I think one of the things that I'm curious about is how, 
um, you think that people like us, right? We're having these conversations with each other. We all see each other, I think, a lot of the same places. But like, how can we come together and not just be selling T-shirts to each other, but really make bigger ideas or, or um, land in more progressive platforms to be able to get that money to take off, right? And become high road employers, right? That can not only employ, um, you know, more of the working class and those that are on the bottom level of that 50%, but, but really then gain enough power to change the bigger political, right? And have bigger impacts. Um, so that's just kind of my question slash comment. And, I'm curious if you guys have anything to know about it because I would love to see like a venture capital just for some of the people in this room. You know, like how do we come up with something like that? Being, unless we can figure out a revolution sooner and um, flip the whole entire capitalist system on its head, which I'm definitely down for, but just in the interim, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> You know, my, my struggle with uh, that stuff is just relationships, kind of like what you said, you know? It's, um, it's uh, I just don't, it's hard, you know? Like, foundation world, it's hard to, like, meet people. And um, I think that uh, what I try to challenge myself is to try to, like, lean in a little bit, like, to people that I'm not really, I don't really hang out with a lot or that are different than me. Like, okay, cool, I'm down to talk to them and see what's happening. And um, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that. I, I guess I just, it's certainly an issue. Um, this sort of old boys network of even in sort of the nonprofit system and folks that are trying to do good. Um, I hear oftentimes of like, how'd you get that grant? It's like, oh, I just know somebody there. Or they, you know, friend of a friend. And that's kind of the sort of a microcosm of the whole economy. And I guess the only way that uh, our organization is trying to push forward on that front is just to be freaking nice to everybody. And... <laughs> And just trying to extend a hand and think a little bit differently and make and get ourselves into uncomfortable situations, um, yeah, and just try to be curious. You know what I mean? I, well, I think if it's any comfort, it's always been very, very hard, and I don't think it's any harder now. I I do think there are some fresh ideas among the millennials that are use a different vocabulary and a different frame of reference um, that I think are very interesting. But basically, getting money is one, around getting people to like you, and two, talking about whatever the heck it is you want to do in their vocabulary. Because government always has some set of, you know, eligibility criteria, this, that, the other. When you write a proposal, you gotta get inside the mind of a really boring bureaucrat and say something exciting. And foundations aren't quite as bad, but they've got a strategic plan. They want safe bets that are gonna get them to the goals of that strategic plan. So it's always a problem of taking your fresh vision, hanging on to your passion, and figuring out how the heck do I package this in words that somebody else will listen to. Yeah, so it's hard. And one last question, I actually saw a hand over there. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dan and, and Rudy for, uh, for bringing up the topic of, of, or describing poverty in a way that I think uh, comes home for a lot of us. And I wonder uh, how different this conversation be, would be if it wasn't in the location 
at a place where a lot of us think the same. You talked about uh, enlightened practitioners, and admittedly, I'm, I'm a lot more jaded than anything else. You know, I've been in this sector for a long time, but how different and how valuable, or how valuable do you think it would be to take this event, this activity, and take it to a place where people don't look or think like us? Because I look around the room and I feel safe. But what's the value of taking the show on the road to a place where people don't think like us, where people don't believe in, uh, in some of the problems uh, we believe in, or even see them the same way we do? Truly, are we going to do this on the road? We can get on the road or what? <laughs> no, I think, I know. I mean, I think, um, you know what, uh, sir, I think that I would, um, I think it's really important to talk about these things. But like, let's say if we were like plopped into like Alabama or, you know, somewhere place that doesn't have access to some of these thoughts or um, somewhere that's different than us, different culture. I probably wouldn't even talk about these things. Like, I, I probably would just start by like, let's just go have a beer, you know? I certainly wouldn't say the system is rigged, like right off the bat, you know? But I think I would, I think that the first strategy that I would take is like, I'm just gonna make a friend, you know? Sometimes I would take meetings with some of these folks that are like, oh, these folks are really strange, but they have resources, maybe they could connect. And I tell my team like, yo, don't even put no pressure on yourself, dude. Just go in there and just make a friend. Find some kind of common ground, talk about the Dodgers, talk about Trump if they voted for Hillary. <laughs> if they voted for Trump, you know, talk about something else. But just, you know, <laughs> just, you know, it's just about common ground. And I think that that's valuable. Like Van Jones, when he did his um, thing um, after the election and he went to people's houses, I mean, it was a publicity stunt because that's, I guess it's a show, but it was kind of dope. Like, he went there and he was just having coffee with them and, like, talking, and he was like, what do you guys think? Oh, damn. And sure enough, at the end of the day of the authentic relationship building, they came to a place of, like, hey, we're actually kind of the same. Yeah. I think problems look different from different uh, locations. I spend part of my time in rural California, and things genuinely do look different. I mean, the relationships are much more personal. Um, but so I think being able to say the things we say to people of good faith in different settings is really important. And I think that's the way we get different outcomes from elections, is the, to find ways to get our values to resonate with people who maybe are in a different part of the world and see the world a little differently, but they still want the basic good things out of life that we do. So I think that's really an important point to ramp up on. Thank you. Thank you, Rudy. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for coming.